Thank you for downloading this podcast from Pardes, North America. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Rabbi Leon Morris on Parashat Beshalach. For the latest episode of Pardes from Jerusalem, please visit elmod.pardes.org. And now, here is Rabbi Leon Morris. Yehuda Amichai wrote, My mother baked the whole world for me in sweet cakes. My beloved filled my window with raisins of stars, and my yearnings closed inside me like bubbles in a loaf of bread. In our parasha, our Torah portion, Bishalach, we begin with the Israelites complaining about thirst and their need to have sweet, drinkable water. And Moses and God are able to give them water. And then the very next thing is that they're complaining about not having enough food. And they say, would that we had died by the hand of the Eternal in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and when we ate our fill of bread. For you, Moses, have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assemblage with hunger. And then we have the miraculous introduction of manna. Vayomer Adonai el Moshe hinani mamtir lechem lechem min hashamayim. The Eternal said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. The story of the manna in the wilderness is really an amazing narrative. And so many verses are devoted to this detail of the survival of the Israelites, both here in Shemot in the book of Exodus and also in Bamidbar in Numbers and Sefer Devarim in Deuteronomy. And the story of manna has within it so many aspects worthy of our attention. I'd like to focus on a few of them. The first aspect that I'd like to examine is the meaning behind the manna itself. And for that, I want to begin by turning to Benno Jacob, one of the great biblical scholars of the 20th century. His commentary is highly original and was translated by his grandson, Rabbi Dr. Walter Jacob, who was a mentor of mine. Benno Jacob writes, Manna showed man that God's creative capacity had not been exhausted by his original creation. His mighty command could still bring sustenance and help in other ways. The manna also taught man that his heavenly father would not abandon him. The extended desert journey to the promised land made this quite clear. Later, the mature people who lacked nothing should not forget the hardships of their youth and God's marvelous help. They had been well provided throughout their childhood. Jacob goes on to say that manna really is the food of the gods, that when we look at Psalms, manna is the nourishment of divine beings. And here, the children of Israel receive it. Uh, Jacob writes, They never sowed or reaped, but were alive and strong. 
If matzah was the daily bread of nobility, then manna was matzah become sublime, a symbol of freedom from everything worldly and of heavenly nobility. The 40 years of manna in the desert may be equated with Moses' 40-day sojourn on the mountain of God, during which he ate no bread and drank no water. This is just beautiful. Beno Jacob makes the connection between manna being the food of heaven, as described in the psalm, and saying that what that means is that this transition from having eaten matzah upon leaving Egypt, that which he calls the daily bread of nobility, but manna is something more sublime. It's a symbol of freedom from that which is worldly. It's a symbol of heavenly nobility. And then Beno Jacob draws brilliantly a parallel between 40 years of eating manna in the desert as a kind of communal experience of Moses's 40 days sojourn on Mount Sinai. If for Beno Jacob, the import of the manna was to teach the people about God, to teach them that God would not abandon them and that God would still bring sustenance. The Torah itself suggests that this was a way of providing additional training. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, uh, we read, verse 3, And God humbled you and caused you to suffer hunger and fed you with manna, which you knew not, and neither did your fathers know that God might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the eternal does man live. The tradition equates the first blessing of Birkat Hamazon, grace after meals, in response to uh, the falling of manna, the experience of manna. Uh, we read in Masechet Brachot in the Babylonian Talmud, page 48b, Rav Nachman said, Moses instituted for Israel the first blessing, the blessing Hazan et Hakol, who feeds all, when manna descended for them and they needed to thank God. The idea of manna as a test is further reinforced by Ramban, Nachmanides, on that verse from Deuteronomy, which I read. And the Ramban writes, the situation in which the Israelites were placed regarding the manna represented a great trial for them, since they entered a desert without food of any sort and with no way out. They were totally dependent on the daily portion of manna, which rained down and melted in the heat of the sun. They hungered for it greatly, but bore all their suffering in obedience to God, who might have led them through an inhabited route. He chose, however, to confront them with this trial in order to test their eternal loyalty to him. And Moses Mendelssohn, in his commentary, Habior, writes, by being placed in a position of absolute reliance on God for their daily sustenance, 
they would come, they would become habituated to trust in God and to put their faith in God. And their faith would become part and parcel of their nature. In this way, manna is a kind of theological testing ground and uh, which the children of Israel more or less pass and which cultivates in them the kind of faith that would be required, uh, if not by them, then by their children when they enter the land of Israel. The second idea tied to manna that I'd like to explore is this notion that everyone's amount is the same each day, whether you gather a lot or whether you gather a little. The Torah states, Moses said to them, this is the bread that the Eternal has given you to eat. This is the thing which the Eternal has commanded. Gather of it every person according to their eating an omer for every person according to the number of people, you shall take it. Every person for those who are in their tent. And the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. And when they did measure it with an omer, the one who gathered much had nothing left over. And the one who would gather little had no lack. On the one hand, we have the sense that each person gathered according to his or her need. But it's a little confusing here because they're told to gather just an omer, one measure of the manna for each person in their household. And then we're told that some people gathered more and some people gathered less. And it's not clear exactly what this means. Rashi comes and says about this, that there were some who gathered much and there were some who gathered a little. And when they came home and they measured it out by an omer, the one who gathered a lot and the one who gathered a little had precisely the same amount, one omer per person in his family. And this was a great miracle. So the idea that the miraculous nature of manna was, at least in part, that each person got what he or she needed is reinforced by a Gemara that suggests that this tailored portion for each person was not only in regard to the quantity, but also the quality and the taste. In Masechet Yoma 75b, we read with regard to the manna, it's referred to in different ways in different parts of the Torah. It's called bread in Exodus chapter 16, verse 4, and it's called oil in Numbers chapter 11, verse 8, and it's referred to as honey in Exodus chapter 16, verse 31. And the Gemara asks, how can we reconcile these verses? In other words, they're asking, did the manna taste and have the qualities of bread? Or was it like cakes soaked in oil? Or was it like wafers that are soaked in honey? And the Gemara says in the name of Rabbi Yossi, the son of Rabbi Chanina, for the youth it was like bread, for the elderly it was like oil, and for the children it was like honey. Each person received what was appropriate for them. And this idea 
that the manna was distributed to each person according to his or her needs, and yet it was also the equal amount, uh, is developed by Rabbi Micha Odenheimer, who asks, what is the essential quality of manna? It is a sustenance unmediated by a human economic system. It cannot be stored or hoarded. Left overnight, it spoils, corrupts, and crawls with worms. Each and every person is charged with gathering just enough manna to eat for one day. And the Torah calls this Devar Yom Biyomo, each day's matter on that day. Odenheimer goes on to explain that this is part of the revolutionary nature of the Exodus, that as opposed to Egyptian reality, here with regard to manna, we don't have the gross accumulation of resources, but rather the most modest amount of sustenance that each person needs for that particular way. There's another way in which this is explained, which is not each person according to his or her needs, but rather each person according to what he or she deserves. This uh, is a classic theological reading uh, in which we have the principle of midah keneged midah, measure for measure. And in that same page of Gemara, Yoma 75, but this time Amud Aleph, we have a passage in which the Gemara is exploring the seeming discrepancy of exactly where did the manna fall and how convenient was it. The Gemara is responding in some ways to the fact that in the book of Numbers it says, when the dew fell upon the camp at night, manna fell upon it. And in Exodus it says, when the nation went out and gathered it. And elsewhere in Numbers, in Numbers chapter 11, it says the nation searched and gathered. So the Gemara is asking, which one was it? Did the manna fall right outside their tent? Did they have to go out and gather it? Or did they have to really go and search? And the answer the Gemara gives is that for righteous people, tzaddikim, the manna fell right outside their tents. For the benonim, the in-betweeners, the average people, they had to go out and find it. And the Rishaim, the wicked people, had to really search hard in order to find it and then gather it in. This is in some ways another form in which the manna is tailored for each person. And yet still, because the measurement is the same, a kind of equality exists between all of them nonetheless. The quantity is identical, but the experience or, as we saw previously, the taste may be different. There's a beautiful poem by an American Hebrew language poet, Gabriel Priel, who died in 1993 and was probably the most famous Hebrew poet writing from America for a largely Israeli readership. And Priel's con contrasts in this poem his grandfather and himself in a poem that's called Pirkei Zman, Sheli Shalo, Chapters of Time, His and Mine. He writes, Take a look at Grandpa, young in his Lithuanian town, 
Early in the morning, he would rise and after prayer, jot down his new comments on the law, then prepare an essay for Hamelites and discover qualities of manna in stale bread and hot water. He was a great man. Take a look at me, a young man on American soil, not exactly an anomalous creature writing poems in Hebrew, a man whose prayer is mute, sipping at noon a tepid morning cup and convincing himself he'd found in it a taste of something rare, dreamt. To each man his manna in his own time. In the Hebrew, kol ish bimano bizmano, a beautiful play on words. Uh, also uh, done here in translation, to each man his manna in his own time. The next aspect I want to examine is the name manna itself. First of all, the explanation is given in the Torah, in our parasha, Exodus chapter 16, verse 15. That they, uh, the children of Israel looked and each one said to his fellow, what is this? Manhu. And we read uh, a little bit later in the same chapter that the name uh, of the substance or the bread is man. Vayikru'u veit Yisrael et shemo man. So what's going on here? It's kind of perplexing because it doesn't say mahu, what is it? Rather, it says manhu. The commentators... Uh, have a lot to say about this. Chizkuni understands man as the Egyptian language word equivalent to the Hebrew ma, that the people were asking each other about the nature of this flaky substance above the layer of dew. That's a fairly straightforward reading except for the fact that saying that man is the Egyptian way of saying ma. Rabbeinu Bachya has a different take. He says, no, this is a Hebrew word, and man is derived from the Hebrew word mana, portion or gift, as we find in 1 Samuel in the story of Chana. Ulechana yitain mana achat apayim. And to Hannah, he gave one worthy portion, one worthy gift. Says Rabbeinu Bachia, seeing that the people didn't know what this substance was, they named it gift or portion, man. Another explanation of the name is brought by Rabbi Moshe Al-Sheikh from 16th century Svat in his commentary called Torat Moshe. And he's commentating on the verse, Vayomer ish elechav manhu, and each person said to his fellow, what is this? And he understands this as saying, what good is this for us? 
This is the food of the angels. How will it profit us? Three very different takes on the name. And I want to bring in another from my teacher, uh, philosopher and rabbi Mark Ellen Wachnin, from his book called The Burnt Book, Readings in the Talmud, in which he understands the manna as being related to questioning and meaning. He understands that the question the people ask of manhu, what is this, and that the bread is named after the question, is the key for understanding what manna is about, that manna represents the dynamism of meaning. And he plays on the fact that ta'am means both taste and meaning. And when the Israelites ultimately complain uh, shortly that they're getting sick of the manna that they have day in and day out and that they want meat, Wachnin says that they're complaining about the fact that the act of questioning has lost meaning for them because they're consuming the manna only as food. But the manna also needs to be experienced as sign as symbol, as questioning, as interpretation. They need to understand that it had meaning in it. And the meaning he's explaining is the asking of the question. That the food itself is named for the question when they say manhu, what is it? And they call this substance, what is it? And, and if they experience this through the question which allows reality to be refreshed in it every moment, then they wouldn't need to reject it. So the manna is a way of instructing them that they need to consume the question, that they need to be people who are filled up and renewed by questions and interpretation. The last aspect of manna that I want to explore is the centrality of Shabbat in this section. At the very beginning of the description of the manna, the second verse in which manna is addressed, we have the topic of Shabbat. And it came to pass on the sixth day, and it shall come to pass on the sixth day that when they prepare that which they bring in, there shall be twice as much as they gather daily. And this is revisited again in verse 22. And it came to pass that on the sixth day they gathered a double provision. Two Omer for one person. And all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses, and he said to them, This is that which the Eternal has said. Tomorrow is the rest of the holy Shabbat to the Eternal. Bake what you will today and what you will boil, boil today. And that which remains over, put it away to be kept until the morning. And they laid it up until the morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink. Neither were there any worm in it. This is contrasting with what happened to the leftover manna the other days of the week. And Moses said, eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the eternal. Today you will not find in the field manna. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, on it there shall be none. And then, of course, we read that it came to pass that some of the people went out on the seventh day together and they found none. 
and God became angry that they didn't listen to God. And uh, it says, God has given you the Sabbath, and therefore I gave you a double portion. And then we have the definitive statement that the name that the house of Israel called this substance is man, and the taste is described. So I want to return to Ben Jacob, and he notes that the name for manna only emerges after the observance of Shabbat. And he writes, this occurred only after all Israel together as a single household had observed the Sabbath. Meals have always united families, but only on the Sabbath when everyone was present and the meal was specifically provided by God did the Israelites realize the treasure which they possessed in their family and in the Sabbath? Only an Israelite who was celebrating the Sabbath could have known the meaning of manna. It's beautiful. And it's worth noting here that this is the first instance of the mention of Shabbat, that the mention of Shabbat in the context of manna in Exodus chapter 16 is the first time Shabbat is named. We have the establishment of Shabbat, of course, in the story of creation toward the beginning of Genesis. But it's not called Shabbat. It says there, Vayishbot bayom hashvi'i, uh, that God rested or ceased on the seventh day. But the day itself is not called Shabbat until we get to Exodus chapter 16, verse 23. Vayomer alehem hu asher diber Hashem Shabbaton, Shabbat Kodesh Lashem Machar. And he said to them, This is what the Eternal has said. Tomorrow is the rest of the holy Shabbat to the Eternal. Bake that which you will and bake today. And what you will boil, boil today, etc. And so the very definition of Shabbat, the very naming of Shabbat, is first asserted through the dependence on God to provide on a meal that is entirely catered by God. And both Shabbat gets named and manna gets named in the very same chapter. I want to conclude by returning to Ben Jacob, who writes about the whole narrative of manna. He writes so beautifully, and with this we'll conclude. Life and God's constant recreation is experienced most readily by us all when we see the early morning dew. All life again seems fresh and new. The ancient Israelites who lacked faith may also have risen early to inspect the manna collected on the previous day, but they would have found that it had rotted. He writes, in this period, Israel could not and should not attempt to sustain itself, but depend upon God alone. Israel recognized that this divine care renewed itself each morning and did not cease. May we all experience the divine care that renews itself each morning and does not cease. Thank you.
Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of Pardes North America. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Spotify for the latest episode of Pardes from Jerusalem or by visiting elmod.pardes.org. Tune in next week as Rabbi Mike Uram discusses Parashat Yitro. Thanks for listening.